I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. In this episode, in 2011, Darren Hinch was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He discovered another well-known international journalist was wrestling with the same problem, and like him, went very public about it all. His name was Christopher Hitchens. Tragically, he died in December 2011. Hinch had a liver transplant weeks away from death. Hitchens once said about death, The fear of death will not leave us. Nobody doesn't have it sometimes. I'm not particularly afraid of it, because I'm not going to know I'm dead. But the thought of not being here while you are pisses me off a bit. So how do you cope? Darren, welcome again to That's Life. Mr Tardio, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to start this one by uh, reminiscing a little bit. I, I, the year was 2011. You had just been on holidays. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, uh, I got a call from Channel 9 saying, uh, we're hearing that Hinch is going to resign or he's going to make some big announcement. And I said, oh, I don't know anything about I haven't actually seen him. Uh, anyway, about half an this hour... This is my first day back. Your yeah. first day back. Mm. Half an hour later, you came into the newsroom, which you often would do, and I said, uh, Darren, I'm hearing you're going to resign. And you said, oh, well, you're going to have to wait, sunshine. <laughs> Four o'clock, bank of TV cameras in the studio, all pointing toward you, and you make the announcement you were diagnosed with cancer, mm. cancer of the liver. Tell me about all that. Well, how, how, how many days prior to that had you been diagnosed? Well, it was uh, your, your, reac- your recollection is exactly spot on. Um, I'd been, bef- as I was just going about to go on, on, on holidays, and, uh, and I'd had a, an ultrasound. And I, used to, I was having ultrasounds every few months anyway because I knew there was a spot on my liver. But I used to go and see my gastroenterologist and uh, and I'd get on in the car coming home, I'd say to my then wife, Chanel, I'd say, well, if it ain't going anywhere, I ain't going anywhere because it wasn't moving. It was just there. And they didn't want to, um, didn't want to uh, dig into it because it was right on the top of the liver, very close to the, to the heart. So, um, so anyway, I, I got a call from the doctors and they did a, a test and then... I got a call to go back again a couple of days later. Well, that's a bit strange. I mean, I'm, I'm not there to give them my autograph. And at the same time, doctor said, I think you better go and see Bob Jones again. Now, years before, when I was first diagnosed with a spot, I'd been to see Professor Jones, who's the liver expert, the transplant expert, uh, years before. And it, 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 that was in 2006 or seven. Anyway, um, we... I said, you better go see Bob Jones. I said, well, I'm going off to... I'm going off to Sydney for a couple of weeks and soon he said, well, I think you should go now. And so I realised then it must be very serious. So I did. And then I, I get I get a call the night before we're due to go to Sydney and I'm told that I do have liver cancer and it's a primary cancer and it's prob- it could be terminal. And I obviously said, well, how long have I got? And the doctor said, oh, probably 12 months. And so... 
I remember telling Chanel about it. That's exactly, obviously. And she said, well, obviously, well, Sydney's off then, isn't it? In the nicest way. And I, uh, and I said, why? She said, well, because you're sick. I said, hang on. I said, I'm no different tonight than I was this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm going to Sydney tomorrow. We're going to Sydney tomorrow. I said, if I take this other attitude that something's wrong and I'm really sick, I might as well put a box in the living room and lie in it now and wait for it to happen because I'm going to live my life the way it was, the way it is. And I, I waited till the, another few days to the end of the holidays. I knew Monday was my day back on. Um, ironically, the night before, the night before I went back on radio, they had screened, I think on Channel 9, they'd screened the Jim Stein's cancer special. And uh, so I'm sitting at home knowing that I'm going to go in here next day and say I've got cancer watching Jimmy Stein's, who I'd known for years and years and years. Um, uh, and a side light to that was next day when I was going to go on here and discuss it, one of the bosses at 3AW said, well, I hope it doesn't overshadow the Jim Stein stuff. He's one of your staffers <laughs> telling you he might die. Anyway, I went on air and I said I've got cancer. That very night, I started a um, a blog on, on, on the internet and I said, I called it My Liver, My Life. I said, I've got cancer. I'm going to tell you about it. And I did every day, the good stuff, the bad stuff, whatever happened, I'm going to tell you about it. And I did. I thought and I hoped it may help other people who were in the same situation or families who had it. And uh, and I told, there were some funny moments, <laughs> believe it or not. I mean, at one stage, my, my producer was Shannon Reed, And uh, and she was a, a single woman. And one day I had to phone her up from the, from the Austin Hospital and say, Shannon, I've got to ask you a question which is very impertinent and uh, don't take it the wrong way, but here goes, are you pregnant? She said, what? I said, well, I've just had nuclear examinations or nuclear treatment at the Austin and they tell me, I'm coming on air this afternoon, and they tell me I can't be around pregnant women for something like 10 hours, six or 10 hours. And she said, well, no, I'm not, so I'm coming to work. Right? <laughs> <laughs> About five months later, because it took eight months to get to get the transplant, five months later I've had some more nuclear treatment. I have to phone her again and say, Shannon, has anything changed? <laughs> you know, and so that was that. The other one that you were involved in, actually, and I tried to just do my job as normal. I tried to behave as normally as I could in, in, in the, at the office and keep it all going. Um, one day, I recall, I walked to the newsroom, as you know, I'd come in every day and have a gossip with you guys, what's going down. And uh, as I walked in, there was you and somebody else. Andre, Andre Knoll, who's the produ oh, okay. production guy. Yeah, you're both there. The and one, one of you, I don't remember. We're whinging, basically. You're whinging, you're whinging. You're both having a bit of a whinge. And one's saying, ah, oh, you know, I'm really, really just not feeling up to it today. Oh, you know, I'm bitching about something. And one of them says, yeah, I feel a bit the same. I guess it's the weather, um, but I'm not feeling too hot. And I said, oh, I, I stepped in and said, oh, yeah, I'm not feeling too hot either. I think it's because I've got cancer. <laughs> and there's a dead silence. You didn't know where to go. And I made a joke of it and said, hey, it's okay, guys, lighten up. I mean, it's a – and I, I want to tell you one thing because it's a, there's a bit of a myth that has floated around a lot. And I'm not making excuses for this because uh, my drinking was mad and I was reckless at the amount of booze I used to drink. The, and I got a transplant. Liquor did not – did not cause my need for a liver transplant. It didn't help my treatment because 
because of drinking so much and stupidly, I got cirrhosis of the liver, which means your liver gets fatty, etc. And if I hadn't had cirrhosis, if I hadn't been a drinker, they could have done what they call a resection and could have cut my liver in half, left the good part half in there, taken out the cancerous bit, and the liver is an amazing organ. It would regrow in about four weeks, four or five weeks, and I could have avoided needing a transplant. But the doctors told me, I said, we could do the operation, Darren, and the operation will work, but you will die because the half where the cancer is was in the good half and not in the cirrhotic half. So, I mean, I was, well, I was lucky because I got I'm only one of about, they tell me about 10% of people who get a primary cancer in the liver. By the time most people get liver cancer, it's metastasized. It's come from somewhere else. Uh, and so that's why people say, well, how come Hinch got a liver transplant and my father couldn't? And he was younger than Hinch. Well, the fact is, you probably your, your father or mother may have had cancer of the pancreas or p- cancer of somewhere else. And they're not going to put a transplant into somebody who has cancer somewhere else. And to the, I know this very well, and I've studied it a lot, because every test I was having uh, when I was diagnosed with, with, with liver cancer, I'd, I'd go and have the tests, and, I'd, and the fear was... And I wrote about this. I'd say it was like Star Wars, you know, our, our planes would zip out there and whatever. And they're giving me treatment and I'm having, uh, I'm having chemo and I'm having radiotherapy, etc. Um, and I used to keep saying it hasn't travelled. I mean, I always feared, and so did my doctors, that, putting it in a weird way, that the cancer would get on a boat and travel through my bloodstream and land somewhere else. And therefore, it would get worse and worse. And then I wouldn't be eligible for a transplant. But as it happened, it didn't move. It didn't move. And I said I had the nuclear treatment. I had chemo. I had radiotherapy. I'm probably one of the few people who had chemo. His hair didn't fall out. Um, and so, and then I, then I had then I had the transplant. But I, I stress, it, the drinking was stupid. Uh, the excessive drinking was stupid. But it didn't cause the cancer. The cancer was was a primary cancer. When they told you that you had cancer and it was terminal, mm-hmm. did they actually? give you this other option that the only way you're going to survive this is a liver transplant yes or did that come later on no straight away um even beforehand even years before when i was first diagnosed with a spot on my liver um my gastroenterologist sent me to bob jones uh, like four five years before i got a transplant saying you should go and see bob jones he's the best in australia and who knows down the track you may need a transplant and you may need him. And it was prescient because that's exactly how, how it worked out. But I remember, and I've written about this, I, gave, I dedicated my, 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 one of my books, um, you know, A Human Deadline. I dedicated that to my nana, my grandmother on my father's side because Nana Hinch, who was born in the 1890s, um, once said, it's not what happens to you in life that matters. It's how you handle it. And I took that on board as my mantra. I thought, I'm going to handle this, and I'll do it the best way I can. So I never, ever thought, I mean, I hear some people with illnesses, and they'll say, why me? And I never said, why me? I said, why not me? I mean, why shouldn't it be you? Well, I, I was watching this happen, and I was amazed at, how you handled it because I never saw you 
uh, wallow in any self-pity whatsoever. The only time I saw any hint of emotion was not when I saw you face to face, when I saw you on television. 60 Minutes had done a story and you were in a doctor's surgery Mm. and they were explaining to you what was going to happen. And you turned and I think you spoke to Chanel and you had a tear in your eye and I thought, gee, that's... I'd never actually yes, seen they they sat, they, well, you, You've got to go through, before you even get a transplant, you have to go through, I think it was something like 27 or 29 hours of various treatments. Uh, and this, these aren't the medical treatments. You've got to have psychology tests. They want to know this, they want to know that. I mean, um, at one stage, I had to, you had to go and spend a couple of days at, uh, at, uh, out of the Austin and some funk there as they... Doctors came in and psychologists came in and et cetera, et cetera. And then there was a listing. I had to go and have an hour of pastoral care. And I Which said... Which is not really you. Pastoral you? care. I said, <laughs> why am I doing this? They said, well, you have to do it. I said, well, I'm an atheist. Why do I want pastoral care? So anyway, they said, you've got to do it. It's part of the, the hours you have to do. So I went in and I said to the, to the, uh, the pastoralist, whoever it was, I said, okay, let's talk about pastoral care. Do you want to talk about cows or horses? <laughs> and, 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 I, and when I was sick, and I did have a, a dummy run once, and they cancelled the operation a couple of hours beforehand, um, the, uh, one of the people in pastoral care tried to come into the room, and, and Chanel said, uh-uh, don't do that. You know, he's, he's not interested. He's not interested. You know? I, mean, I, I remember... I mean, people, sorry, people would say, oh, I bet if you're dying, you'd say, oh, I believe in God. Well, I was pretty close to it yeah. and I still didn't I remember asking you at one stage uh, Darren you, you know like are, are you worried are you concerned are you, I mean obviously you were because you know you don't want to lose your life mm. but I remember you saying I've had a good life so even if I do go I'm prepared for it yeah you, you were speaking honestly to yeah, me yeah it was I, yeah, we, well at least say thanks for the loan of the hall you know um, but I mean since the transplant I've, I've lived that was 2011 you know it's now you know, now 2020, uh, and I wouldn't have had a career in, in politics. I wouldn't have been a senator, all those sorts of things. Um, look, it's an interesting area uh, where people... I said I wrote my blog and tried to talk to people about it, and since then, whenever I'm at the Austin, I go through the uh, the transplant ward of people waiting transplants so people can see somebody who's had one walking around, and I chat to people when we're out there having tests, and anybody wants to, I'll, I'll have a chat to them because it, it, you feel you're doing doing some good. Now, recently I saw Deborah Hutton, who's one of the most famous faces in Australia, been on every magazine cover, model, TV host, etc. She went public a while ago, because she's had several times a skin cancer, facial, very bad facial skin cancer. And so she had half the top lip and whatever chopped away. And she deliberately, without makeup, went on social media showing the scars and the, and the stitches, etc., etc. Went on a current affair, went on morning shows to say to people, get yourself checked, do this, do that. And I can understand where she's coming from totally because you feel if you're doing something like that, you're also contributing, you're putting something, putting something back in there. And, and I thought she was fantastic the way she was doing that. Um, at the time that you were diagnosed, you had a group of friends that were healthy. Mm. Paul Barber. Yeah. Daryl Cotton. Susie, uh, there was a PR lady who I think also died of cancer. She was healthy at that stage. Mm-hmm. They've all gone. Yeah. Shows you how lucky you were that 
you know, nine years later, you are still here and healthy. Yeah, yeah. When you think of, yeah, uh, and uh, Ross Warnicky uh, um, and, you know, um, it, it, it is, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that I have managed to, to still be here. Uh, uh, and I'm grateful for it. And I'm grateful to the, to the donor family. I mean, I only got a, a transplant because Heath Gardner, who was my donor, uh, a young man who, uh, who committed suicide, um, he, his, he, was, he, he shot himself. He was in hospital. His father got there first. He was on life support. And they keep him alive. Um, his sister told me later when I met them, when she got there, in shock, her father came out and said to her, oh, he said, they've asked me if I want to donate his organs. What do you reckon? What do you reckon? And she said, why not? And he was just, he just turned 28, you know, and... Uh, and, it was, and, and and I was I was so lucky, and I only got to meet them because they contacted me. I was very cautious because you're not meant to meet donors. But in the end, I met his sisters and his and, and his mother and his father and etc. Um, well, you were you were on the waiting list. Yeah, and you'd been called up numerous times. Yeah, I'll be caught up and taken in once for a dummy run. But Bob Jones told me people say, "Oh, Hinch is getting favoured. Hinch got favoured treatment. He got you know he was he jumped the list." Bob Jones told me years later, he said, you actually were given special treatment. He said, you were. He said, I told, instructed the staff, we cannot transplant Hinch within three months because it'll look like he's getting special treatment. So he said, you got special treatment the other way. The other way. Now, a weird thing, speaking of, of, of illnesses and how, how many lives does a cat have, years before, back in 2006, so this is five years before the transplant, I contracted an illness which I thought was a medieval disease, and it was septicemia. And I didn't think people got septicemia anymore, and I got it. And uh, I, rem- I remember you coming into the newsroom after you did your program, and you were shaking. Yeah. And I said, are you all right, Darren? Yeah. And uh, you, I can't remember what you said, yeah. but you went home. Well, yeah, you know, and you, get, you do, you get the, the re-rigors, you get the shakes, and your teeth actually chatter. And I'm here in the morning, and uh, luckily Chanel said to me, she said, you, 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 okay, I put a, a leather jacket on and a dressing gown and was still cold. And she said, get to the doctor. Luckily, the medical centre is across the road from me. So I was meant to be going later in the day for something else, but I race over early. And I'm so glad I did because when you've got septicemia, there's a thing called the golden hour. If they can get within an hour, get antibiotics and pump them into you. Uh, you're in much better shape because the fear is that it'll get to your brain or your heart valves or your bones and will kill you. Now, I the same week that happened to me, believe it or not, and I didn't know that septicemia still existed, uh, our colleague, Clark Forbes, his wife scratched her leg on a boat and got septicemia and died within three or four days. I mean, it is the most dangerous, dangerous thing. And the night I was in hospital, and they did pump me full of antibiotics and stuff. Chanel said to me the next day, she said, do you know they had seven doctors working on you last night? And I said, no, obviously not. And she, I said, I'll, I'll talk to the doctors about it today. And I asked what I said, isn't that a lot? And he said, well, we thought we'd lost you. And I said, seven, eight, nine, cue the elephants, you know, what, what the hell? And so it came very close, but I, I got out of it. But I, I'll tell you a funny story which people can use if they ever get in that situation, um, you've written about this and talked about it on radio a lot, the thing about hospital bypass, 
right? Where you, hospitals are closed down, you can't go to certain hospitals because of bypass. And I'd written about it and I'd talked about it a lot, so I, I knew a lot about it. I get across the medical centre, they diagnose me with septicemia, they uh, call for an ambulance, the ambulance comes and I get in the ambulance and I said, where are we going? I said, you go to Cabrini? Because I'd been there before. And they said, no, we go to Box Hill, Cabrini's on bypass. And I thought, I don't want to go to Box Hill. And I said to the ambulance driver, or the person in the back, I said, pull over. So I pulled over the ambulance. I called Michael, my driver, to bring his limousine. And Michael turns up in the limo. I get out of the ambulance, get in the limo. (laughs) (laughs) He drives me to Cabrini because I knew if you pull up at an emergency uh, emergency department of a hospital, they can't turn you away. And so I turned up in a limo, go to the emergency room. And the joke was, it happened to me twice when another time I was in hospital, um, the only room they had was in the maternity ward. So they put me in the maternity ward. So I'm now the only person, you look at somebody who has spent nights twice in a maternity ward and came out with no baby. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, but the, and never been pregnant. And never been pregnant, no. The, but the Cabrini was such a, a great hospital to be in. I was there for, uh, for with septicemia. It was a, it's a terrible thing, you know. And, uh, but uh, and, as I said, with with Clark's wife. Um, but I obviously thought it was an old-fashioned illness. Um, as I understand it, and you can correct me, uh, Darren, uh, you got to within three weeks of dying. Uh, well, how it happened, how, how I know this is because 60 Minutes was shooting it all for, for Donate Life and for, for, just to, for um, transplant stories. Um, I've actually held my old liver in my hand while we're filming it for 60 Minutes. And uh, and I've got it there, and I'm holding it, and the uh, the pathologist and I are chatting, and I said, "Well, I said, I said, how long do you reckon I had to go?" He said, "Well, he said now I've got it out and had a good look at it. I reckon about two weeks. So that that was it, you know." And, uh, so that's how, how how close things can be. Um, it was it was July two thousand and eleven. July the sixth. Right. You, you, there you go. <laughs> well, of course you'd know the date. And uh, you were actually at a three AW function when you got the call. The worst thing was it was a, a farewell for Michael James, Darren James' son, who was going to live overseas. And I'd got off air, and they're having a function at the we call the Frog and Toad or something, some pub up the road. I hadn't been to a pub in in ages, you know, and and I also I didn't drink, obviously, uh, and uh, I, I, did, I hadn't. Well, you you can't drink for a year before you're on the list anyway, you know. I I didn't drink at all for seven years. Um, I was going to go. I thought oh, it's, it's Darren James, son. It's Michael. I've known him since he was a baby. I better go. So I went there. And uh, I was at the function, and Shannon Reed had just gone, was heading home, and they, they called Chanel, and they didn't get her phone answered. They called me, and I didn't hear my phone in such a noisy, I think it's an Irish pub, a noisy pub. They called Shannon. It was pissing with rain. She was just about to get on a tram, so her phone may have been turned off, but she got a message from the hospital saying, well, it's a transplant. We've got a transplant for Darren. Where is he? She came back and didn't want to attract attention, you know, and just somehow got me a signal from outside and I just quietly snuck out. And and when Darren and Michael woke up next morning, there's a picture of, of, of the three of us uh, on the news and uh, they didn't even know I'd gone, you know. But um, 
How did you feel, Darren, being driven or driving to the Austin Hospital, knowing that uh, you may well die on the operating well, it, table? Yeah, um, and I did, my heart did stop on the operating table, so I almost cocked it. Um, look, because it was such short notice, we had to take a cab, and uh, we're in the cab, and I can tell the story now, he's in the cab, and uh, I get a call from Bob Jones, and he said, um, oh, he said, Darren, um, it's all good. He said, under control. The, 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 the donated liver is here, ready to go. Where are you? And I said, oh, I'm about 15 minutes away. He said, fantastic. See you then. And then he said, oh, but I, should, I should tell you uh, that your, um, your donor was a user. I said, sure. okay, thanks, goodbye. And she not have heard the conversation. And she said, do you realise that what he said? I said, yeah, well, obviously the guy used drugs. So she said, well, that could mean that you could have hep B or hep C or HIV. I said, oh. And the phone rings again. It's Bob Jones. He said, oh, Daryl, I should have explained to you that means you could have hep B, hep C or HIV, well, you know. But he said, I'm told he hasn't used... For, for weeks, which wasn't true. He'd used that night, apparently. Anyway, so I said, okay. And it didn't really still sink in until I get to the hospital. I'm sitting there in, the, in your white paper dressing gown, which you have to put on backwards and you have to be an origami expert to work your way through. I think, I think somebody's a bum lover who actually invented those, <laughs> those dressing gowns. But anyway, I'm sitting on the bed in my paper underwear and Chanel said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I've been a gambler all my life. I mean, what can I do? I can't say, let's put it off and can you show me what's in your, your second drawer in three weeks' time, luckily, when it turned out. And I said, there's nothing we can do. And the weird thing was, or the conspiratorial thing was, that um, because I didn't want 60 Minutes to know, because it might look bad for the donor program, so I had to keep it secret from them. I'm having, in hospital, I'm having secret blood tests uh, for after my transplant while well, they're filming me but I'm having secret tests as well not quite sure who knew and who didn't about it all um, because I've been told I could still get AIDS for three months after after the transplant um, the refreshing thing in now is that there's a system there's a new cure for hep C and they are now transplanting people with hepatic livers because they can use they can use this new treatment within two or three weeks to cure it, which is one of the greatest breakthroughs of the lot. But back in my day, when I had it, we had no, well, I didn't know, I just had to have, have these secret blood tests to make sure I was still okay. What, what do you remember of waking up after the operation? Um, well, believe it or not, I, uh, it was about an eight hour operation, I think, out of nine. Uh, I woke up and what I remember, first of all, is having so many bloody tubes in you. You've got dozens of tubes and a huge gadget alongside you and, uh, and an oxygen mask on. Um, I was very groggy, obviously. But as the afternoon wore on, I'd promised I'd go on 3AW. And at four o'clock when I was meant to go on, I was still too groggy and so they postponed it. And, and Shannon Reed, the producer, kept calling my wife and saying how's he doing is he coming around she said well he's getting better you know and anyway about by about 5 30 
I was told by the nurses I could take my mask off for two minutes and talk. As it was, I was a bit raspy in the voice, um, but I, I, I spoke for about five minutes, I think, and I was, I'm told I was quite lucid. And uh, I was walking, dragging a huge machine around behind me next morning, and they had me up walking straight away, and, uh, and I was out of there within about nine days. Eight or nine days, so the recovery was, was very was very good, very fast. You you were you were very lucky because um, Damien, my son, played cricket at Box Hill, and one of the kids' fathers had a liver transplant who was much younger than you, and he actually died on the operating table during the operation. So, you know, there was no guarantee that you were going to pull through with it. No, well, that's true because I... And then there's the rejection of it too. That's, that's right. But in the early stage, that thing about dying on the operating table can happen. I mean, according to Bob Jones, my my resistance level uh, was, was not as good as the what the the diagnosis had said and the blood flow doesn't get out of you and get through somehow. I don't know the technicalities, but, um, but my heart did stop on the table and I said to Bob Jones, well, what does that mean you couldn't restart? Would you restart? Well, if we hadn't restarted it, you would have died. I mean, that's what happens, um, etc. Then you have got, of course, the um, the uh, the rejection rate, and it comes back even more to me now during the, um, during the COVID stuff because at my age, and I'm in, in the top 5% of possible cases, and with my condition, because I take med- medicine every day, tacrolimus, to... I call them my Elvis pills because to fool my brain into thinking that Elvis hasn't left the building. Uh, they are designed to lower your immune system so it won't reject a foreign body. So my immune system is much lower than yours. So that's why you fear pneumonia. It's why you make sure you have your flu shot every, every, every winter because pneumonia could take you out and sunspots can take you out because apparently the immune system being lowered somehow widens your chances of getting um, melanomas and uh, you know and basal cell sarcomas and things like that, which I had one removed only about a month ago on my face again. Um, so the rejection pills, but the first week you're on about 80 pills and they give you a, a, a photo chart so you can recognise which pills are which. Uh, now I take three small pills one day and two small pills the next so I'm, I've come down from 80 to three and two so uh, and I'm allowed to eat you know I'm allowed to drink a bit a little bit if I uh, with my doctor's permission I have a glass of wine you know sometimes um, what I'm not allowed believe it or not and this is apparently with a lot of people with medical conditions I'm not allowed grapefruit juice is that weird now is there a reason apparently there is it, a reason. Must, it must um it must neuter the effect of your, of your medication. It's the only thing I can think of. I mean, it's no other reason. You know, you know I, drink, I drink cranberry juice and I drink uh, stuff. But, um, yeah, there's one thing you're not allowed to have is grapefruit juice. Two people saved your life. The man who donated the liver. Yeah. And the man who did the operation, yeah. Bob Jones. When you celebrated 60 years in the media recently... He was there. Yeah. What's your relationship with him? Very good. We, we have become friends. He's one of the most amazing... I guess you would be his number one patient, his well, prized I, I, patient. I suppose he would, didn't want to lose me. Um, although I talked to the... Uh, I went to a function for like the 1,000th transplant. It was a function for the, for the hospital. And the, the anaesthetist was there. And he said... And he made it... I want to make it very 
point that it's his job, not the surgeon's job, to decide whether you keep breathing or not. You know that they, they whether they turn the machine off or not. And at one stage, as we're just going into the function, we're walking in together, um, and uh, McNichol, his name is, and he said to me, "Oh, Darren," he said, "You know, I came so close to turning you off." <laughs> and I said, "What?" He said, oh, "I came very close to turning you off when the when that blood flow and the thing and the." And I said, well, I'm glad you didn't. Thank you, thank you very much. You know, so. how, how do you feel now, Darren? It's nine fact, years. You go walking. You. Uh... I, I walk. I walk. I walk five k's a day, uh, at least six days a week. Um, I, the good thing is, when I went into hospital, then I weighed 104 kilos. Uh, today I weigh 85. You know, that's a in pounds. That's a lot of pounds. A lot of kilos. Um, I think I've told you once before. I why it happened. Why I'm walking. I started a thing called the Goya Club, which is an acronym for Get Off Your Ass. And uh, I started on January one, and I thought I'll, I'll make it public because that means you'll. Because I said because I'm a great believer in the um, um, FBF, which is fade by February, which is most New Year's resolutions you give up by February. So I started the Goya Club very publicly. People have joined this mythical club in America and China and in Christchurch. And it's, it's not a club at all. It's just go walking, get off your ass. And so I do like 5Ks up to the Botanic Gardens and back um, and through those wonderful dirt tracks they have there. I haven't changed my, my diet at all much, although I'm, I still have soup every night. But now I've changed. I'm now making myself... A mixture of vegetable soups, you know, with um, bok choy and Brussels sprouts and and um, broccoli and stuff like that, um, carrots, onion, and I have soup. That goes back to my days. And I did the Hinch, Darren Hinch diet thing. So uh, I'm not a huge eater, but I uh, and I'm feeling very, I'm feeling good. There's a great feeling, mate. You know, you've lost a lot of weight recently. When you can get the old hammer and nail out and stick another hole in your belt about an inch in further than the last one. That's a, a good feeling. Well, I, I lost. I started losing weight because I don't have to eat the muffins that you eat. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron, the experience. This is quite a mighty experience. Uh, how is it? Are you able to say how it's changed your Look, life? It ha- believe it or not, it hasn't changed me. Uh, I, I remain with mass, amazing respect for uh, for the doctors and, and, and the surgeons because they will do twelve hour operations and not leave the table. I mean, I've I've stood uh, with alongside them when I was with for not for nine hours and stood alongside Bob Jones. And so close to the operation that a nurse says to me, uh, put these sunglasses on, Mr Hinch, I don't want to get contaminated blood in your eyes. And when you watch them, and I watch them do a liver transplant, the, 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 the minuscule capillaries that they have to stitch up again. It's, uh, um, stitching you up outside is the easy bit, you know. But they've, they've been working for hour after hour after hour. Um, it is a bit disconcerting the way you see bits of body being... T- tossed to one side so I can get in there, you know. Um, but it's uh, it, it hasn't changed me, I don't think. Um, probably because I've always had a thing about in, in times of trouble or, or crisis in my life. Um, as a journo, I've sat outside Darren Hinch and watched him go to jail. I've sat outside Darren Hinch and watched him have a liver transplant. And I think that puts it weirdly almost in the third person and it makes it easier to handle it, I think. Uh, and and that I get that's my only explanation for it. 
at the time you were diagnosed, another famous journo, Christopher Hitchings. Hitchens. Mm. Hitchens yeah. was diagnosed. You, you, you drew inspiration from him? Yeah, oh, look, I, um, I, um, I read his book, book Hitch 22, uh, and I've read it several times. Um, he... He got the same liver cancer, um, but he didn't get a transplant, and he died, I think, about four months after I got mine. Or four months into my treatment, I think he died. Yes, he did, yeah. Um, but he, you know, um, it was... It, 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 I think it's just amazing that they can that they can do this. You know, they, I mean, the, the doctor who, in, who invented it, uh, he should have got a Nobel Prize, but he, but he didn't. Um, but he, um, I mean, his first... His first um, patients, young patients died, but they—it's weird—they would have died anyway, you know. I, I went a year after I'd had the transplant. I—I uh, I got permission to go to America because that was the last place I went. The, when you say about about being scared, the time it hit me most, I before I, I was transplanted, I did go to America, and I it was one of my great ta- cities is New York, and as I left New York. I looked back in the limo, looked behind me and th- the skyline and thought, it just flashed on me, you'll never see that again. And that was a moment of, you might die. Uh, that was a moment there. But a year afterwards, I went um, back to um, America. I went, to, I went to Philadelphia and saw the doctor. And uh, so I just came to thank you. He said, uh, why? I said, well, without you, I wouldn't be alive. And that night, he, he sent me an email we had lunch together in, in Philadelphia. He sent me a, an email and he said, Darren, uh, it, it was an honour. And I thought, oh, not an honour. I mean, you know, you're the one who should be honoured here. He said, and it still brings tears to my eyes. He wrote, it's, it's an honour to see in you the worldwide ripples of what I dreamed about and started all those years ago. And of course, that can't happen without donors. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And you've campaigned uh, for some hard. sort of donor program to be in place. Yeah. The, is, um, is there enough there? No, no. Only a third of people are on the, even on the list. And the thing is, uh, the push this. Talk to your family about it. Say this is what I want, because almost around about a half of people who are on the organ donor list and want to donate their organs, they're not donated because their family, in their moment of grief, in their time of grief, say no. And you're dead. So you don't know that your wishes have not been have not been looked for. That's why I support now. I did support the opt-out system that they have in Spain uh, for a while where everybody's in, and if you don't want to do it, you, you sign and you opt out. I've changed my mind on that. I now believe... Uh, I've tried testing this in several American states. I call it the living will, whereby you can you can say on, on the on the donor page or in in your will, I wish to be an organ donor, and that cannot be changed by your family. So it is a living will you draw up saying, I insist on being uh, my my organs being donated, and that's the way I hope it'll eventually come in Australia. Why, why do you think government has been Reticent. Well, government actually hasn't because, in one way, Kevin Rudd, this is a scandal, they donated something like $40 million over several years 
to the liver donation, liver transplant campaign. And where all that went, whether just too many pieces with their noses in the trough, I don't know, snouts in the trough, because it, it hasn't got through. It hasn't got out there. You know, The people I really admire, and I went to an organ, I mean, if you look out my window, there's a transplant rose on my balcony, which is given to me at a function I went to in Melbourne, uh, in, in the country. Uh, I think I didn't even beat them, Bacchus Marsh. And at that function, there was a, a young couple, so brave, I won't get all the details, but the little boy, they lived near a railway track and somehow the little boy got through the fence and got hit by a train and killed. And they donated all his organs. Now, I've, I've used a, a hypothetical case like this. You imagine, as a parent, you, 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 you're at home in the morning. You send your nine-year-old daughter off to school, say, love you, darling, pack her lunch, and off she goes. Twelve hours later, you're standing in an intensive care unit at a hospital after some tragic accident and being asked, would you donate your daughter's organs? It's natural to say, what the hell are you talking about, you know? Um, but these people that do, and, and children's organs are the ones that are so desperately needed because they've got a life to live. If, if I'd carked it, I've had a life, you know? So they're even more important to sign your children up or get them if they can than otherwise. And And... With children now, because they're so good at it, and the Bob Jones of this world, they can take a, a, an adult-sized liver and cut it up and, and, and transplant part of it, and those kids will live. So it's an amazing thing. And, and you've got, you've got um, now multiple transplants, you know, um, where they'll do like a lungs and heart, etc., or... Um, the kidneys and this, and, and or stomach and this. You know, you, you remember Marianne Thrush, whom I have talked about a lot on 3AW. She's still waiting all these years later, but she's now on the list again. And uh, and she's in for a multiple transplant. I mean, I, I actually set it on operation and watched her having part of her body removed, which is, that's pretty daunting when you know the person that's on the table being cut up, cut open. I, I held her hand before she went in, before she went under, and I was there holding her hand when she woke up. But to know that the, the, the body you're seeing being being cut open and bits being taken out of is somebody who you recognise and know, that's that's a bit of a bit of a challenge. Darren Hinch, by any measure, you've had a remarkable life, <laughs> and this episode is probably the most remarkable part. Yes, well, life. as Jackie Weaver used to say, it, uh, uh, it's a uh, life's a tapestry, and I said, I just wish mine wasn't so tattered. But there we are. <laughs> Thanks, mate. And of course, you also said that you can't get rid of noxious weeds. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no. The line is, yeah, you, you, well, you, um, um, you can't kill weeds, you can't kill noxious weeds, and you can't kill obnoxious weeds. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay. Darren Inch, thank you very much. Thanks, mate.